On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. I think what was said and done um, during that interval was regrettable on on both sides. Um, Obviously, Quinton got quite personal and provoked uh, an emotional response from from Davey. Um, And, yeah, I think those things are are not on from from both sides. Um, You know, getting personal on the fields... Uh, not on, and that's that's crossing the line in my opinion. Hello, and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, aka Menas, and it has taken just one test for it all to kick off in South Africa. So on this week's edition of the show, I'm going to be speaking to News Corp's intrepid cricket reporter, Ben Horn, who is over in Durban. So I'm going to get all the reaction and fallout from the first test and the Dave Warner and Quinton de Kock incident in the stairwell as they came off the field on the fourth afternoon. Then after speaking to Ben Horn, I have a very special guest joining me. I was lucky enough to speak to one of the stars from the Australian women's cricket team, Elise Perry, before she headed off to India for the one-day series over there. All right, now let's head straight to South Africa and I have on the line Ben Horn, the ace cricket reporter from News Corp. Ben, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks, man. It's uh, a lot of drama going on over here, that's for sure. Yeah, it's just so much off-field stuff drama before we get on to the actual brilliant result of the first test from Australia, who've gone 1-0 up in the series. I guess, can you just update the listeners on what's happened, I guess, overnight Australian time, I believe? David Warner and Quinton de Kock have both been charged for their involvement in the stairwell incident? Yeah, that's right. They've both been charged. David Warner with a grade 2 quantum conduct and Quinton de Kock with a grade 1. So David Warner uh, with a grade 2 could potentially be suspended, but my understanding is he won't be. You can get three or four demerit points for a grade 2, and uh, my understanding is 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 three. So that means he would escape suspension, but obviously be then walking the tightrope for not only the rest of the series, but uh, the next two years, uh, any kind of minor disciplinary matter could see him suspended for a match. So um, but I suppose the good news for Australia is he is set to play the second test. Quinton de Kock uh, is in no danger of missing this test, but I guess uh, if he accepts the charge, we'll have uh, a demerit point or so against his name. But the interesting thing to play out here, man, is both teams have until tomorrow, uh, which is later today, Australian time, but Wednesday, local time, to respond to the charges. If both sides accept the sanctions, then a line will be put through the matter. But there is that possibility that South Africa could still appeal de Kock's charge. That would seem illogical based on some of the evidence that's been presented. But we did have a situation last time South Africa were in Australia that they fought tooth and nail for Faf Duplessis to get off a suspension. 
despite being caught red-handed. I guess one figure that could be a central figure is the Australian wicketkeeper Tim Payne, who, from my understanding, heard sort of what was said between de Kock and Warner. Yeah, um, Tim Payne has spoken to us today and uh, basically talked through a couple of scenarios, one being that he was in the stairwell and heard the, the comment that was made. So he's basically defended Warner for, you know, at least um, can understand why Warner reacted the way he did and was basically between the two when it happened. So who knows what would have happened in the confrontation if Tim Payne had to physically been there between them. Um, I guess the main thing he was saying, though, was, you know, he was voicing Australia's denials um, at suggestions out of the South African camp that Warner had uh, been abusive to to cock about uh, members of his family, his sister and his mother. Those suggestions haven't been put on the record by South Africa, but reportedly have sort of come from within the camp. And Payne has uh, has come out and, and staunchly denied that that's the case and said that there was no personal abuse of uh, of de Kock during the during the day. It's become a bit of a he said she said situation, but the one thing that does support the Australians' viewpoint on this is that the umpires seem to be supporting the Australians on that count in that they didn't hear anything untoward during the day's play or anything that they felt warranted them jumping in. And they're actually quite upset that South Africa has insinuated that the umpire should have done more to, to nip the issue in the bud before it blew up at the tea break. So, as I said, it's a, it's a bit of a to and fro, but the Australians very strong in denying um, that they had sledged to cock about his mother and sister. Yeah, my understanding is that the South African management actually spoke to the media over there uh, before or after a press conference to give that information about the sledging. And I don't know if you're aware, but some footage came out sort of late uh, night here of David Warner saying to Quinton de Kock that he was being a bit of an effing sook as they came off the field So before that incident mm. in the stairwell. So I guess Warner was caught sledging him, but he certainly didn't say anything about his family. And, you know, I'm sure, well, I've been caught a lot worse than an effing sook. I'm sure everyone has. It's pretty, um, pretty tame comparative to what's been alleged. All right, I want to ask you just... Yeah, although I would say that, you know, like, the Australians push the boundaries with their with their sledging. There's no doubt about that. And uh, although I can't condone, you know, what's what's um, bringing someone's wife into proceedings, there there are a lot of people out there that do, in a way, sympathise with the South African point of view that uh, you know the sledging is relentless and forces a, a, a response. So um, it certainly didn't warrant the kind of response that De Kock made, but. There, you know, there's no doubt that the that the sledging from the Australians was uh, was continuous through the day. But um, yeah, the fact that they have the umpires' support on that front is 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 interesting and and somewhat significant because South Africa have painted a different picture that that things were out of out of control before that tea break and the umpires should have intervened. I can only imagine now that relations between the two teams must be at a well an all time low. Might be a bit of a stretch considering it's been pretty bad in the past, but this is as bad as it gets between the two countries. I would say so, yes. I mean, there's been, you know, a few of these low points over the last couple of series, although the Australian team weren't actually really involved in the whole uh, FAFG for C mint gate situation we had last time around. That was more of a 
sort of fuss versus the Australian media. But in 2014, there was that kind of that drama where uh, FAS called the Australians a, a pack of dogs for the way that they were sledging in that match. But this, this is on a whole other level. I mean, not only do you have allegations that uh, that, that people's um, wives and family members have been have uh, had disparaging comments made about them, but you have the two sides essentially calling the other side liars. I mean, uh, the Australian team could not be any more emphatic that nothing of a personal nature was said to to cock and, and South Africa are presenting the, the other side of the story. So I think it's quite likely that this will be put to a close tomorrow. Um, the reason I say that is there hasn't been a denial at all from the South African camp that they were personal towards David Warner. They, they've essentially admitted that, but they have said that it was a two-way street and that David Warner was, uh, you know, was guilty of personal abuse towards de Kock. So... If that's their argument that it was that it was happening on both sides, then it's difficult to understand how they couldn't accept uh, a lesser charge for de Kock than what Warner's received. So, uh, my understanding is that Australia will accept the charges levelled against David Warner. They'll accept the fact that he'll be fined and have three demerit points against his name. Uh, the question mark, though, is whether South Africa will cop that on the chin. Uh, that's what we're all waiting for. I can't see how they how they fight it, but uh, funnier things have happened. Yeah, uh, have you heard any whispers about how this CCTV footage got out? Well, I think that uh, it was leaked to a local journalist here who's who's done an excellent job on this story, and uh, he's a Durban-based journalist. So there's a couple of theories about whether it was the local association, whether it was the South African team i mean in many ways it's irrelevant i mean the incident happened and both players uh overstepped the mark in the way they reacted by the sort of unacceptable situation all around so you know no doubt the the australians would be um upset that that's got out but but they're powerless to stop that and you know i think um that that's sort of beside the point in a way you know it was it was great it was great journalism to to get that out there and you know it, it it's these things tend to happen, I suppose, when you're playing overseas and there's an axe to grind. I mean, there's certainly, you would think, whoever has leaked it has decided that, that this wouldn't look good for David Warner. That's that's, uh, that's probably fair to say. Yeah, and I just think if you package that with the insistence that the cricket, the people that cover the cricket in South Africa won't turn the stump mics down despite ICC regulations. I think they're really trying to put Australia off their game. I mean, they are desperate to win this series. They've never beaten Australia at home since readmission. Many of their players might not be around again to have another crack at the Aussies at home. So they are fighting tooth and nail and using whatever method they can to get under the Australian skin. And it didn't work on the field in the first test, certainly worked off the field. Yeah, I'm not so sure about the stump mic situation. I mean, I think, you know, I'm really torn. I mean, I, there's a, certainly an argument to suggest that stump mic should be left up. I mean, if there's any way of discouraging uh, players from that in, incessant sledging or sledging that goes over the mark, then over the line, then people would say that leaving the mics up is, is the way to discourage that. I don't quite agree with that. I, I, don't, I don't think it really serves a purpose to have the mics up, but... I would say that South Africa over here, this is a common problem. It's not just this has popped up in this series. This is a country where teams, including Australian teams, have had issues with stump microphones before. So there's just a different attitude from the broadcaster over here 
to that. So I'm not sure it's specific to this exact series. It's just a you know this is how uh, this is how things operate over here. What about Nathan Lyon's charge by the ICC? So he's been fined what fifteen percent of his match fee, lost one demerit point for sort of dropping the ball near or, or partially on AB de Villiers after that run out of AB de Villiers in South Africa's second innings. A strange one from Lyon. How did you see that incident? I think the penalty is about right. I, I think I think it did warrant a charge. I thought it was a bit disrespectful to towards de Villiers. Um, you know, not the world's biggest crime, and, and probably just a spur of the moment thing that you know, um, if he could take it back, he would. So I think it warranted a, a slap on the wrist, and, and that's what he's got. So yeah, I, I didn't think it was uh, it, it was sort of respectful of of a player who's just been run out, and particularly a player of um, De Villiers' class. But, you know, Lyon, um, to his credit, apologised straight afterwards and, and has accepted the charge. So, look, I think that situation has been well handled and it doesn't seem as though there's any other on-field matters um, to come out of this match. Um, there was a couple of other contentious issues. Uh, Warner, uh, when during that same run-out, Warner was um, sent on, on uh, camera to... Uh, be giving a fair bake to um, Aiden Macram, who was responsible for the run-out. Uh, Kagiso Rabada was warned at the time from the umpires for a send-off he gave to Dave Warner. And uh, there might have been, you know, I think Mitchell Stark might have had a few words to say as well at some point. But all of those things were deemed fine. It was just the line incident that overstepped the mark. And, you know, I've got to say, I, I tend to agree with that. Uh, summation of the events. Yeah, I agree too. I thought Lyons was more sort of stupidity or, you know, he just seemed so excited with the run out. He was making a beeline towards David Warner to give him a big hug and he, he just dropped the ball too close to De Villiers. I don't think he really thought about, oh, I'm going to really rub his nose in this. I think it was sort of a situational thing that had he had his time over, as he probably said to De Villiers, he would have done it differently. Okay, so let's go to the yeah. cricket, Ben. I mean, what a fantastic victory by Australia. They beat South Africa by 118 runs in difficult conditions. Uh, some standout performances from many of the players. I want to bring a couple to the surface for this discussion. The first one is Mitch Marsh, who played an absolute blinder in Australia's first innings, making 96. I thought that that 96 was so crucial in getting Australia up to that 350, which turned out to be such a good total. And, you know, I will put that 96 way above the two Ashes centuries he scored in the, his return to the side. I, I just thought that was a, a really special innings and signifies that we may have found a real number six. Yeah, I think uh, I think it probably was his best performance. I mean, the, the maiden Test hundreds probably hard to go past, particularly because I think Australia was in a reasonably tricky patch against England in that Test when he came to the crease. But you know, this was a fighting knock, and the difference with this one, I suppose, was that he didn't have Steve Smith or his brother up the other end to kind of carry the load. It was Mitchell Marsh doing all the heavy lifting himself. Uh, he really led the tail well. And without a shadow of a doubt, if if Marsh didn't put that performance together, Australia would have been at least a hundred runs short of where they ended up, which was a, a three um, a, a three fifty run first innings would have been more like two fifty, and you know in the end that that's probably the difference in the match. So Mitchell Stark deserved his man of the match award, but I think the most important moment in the match was was Mitchell Marsh's 
1996. Yeah, the South African skipper Faf Duplessis, after the test, spoke about the contrasting performances of both tails, the fact that Australia was able to wag and add valuable runs, Stark's 35, and Cummins hung with Mitch Marsh for a while. But then Stark, Mitchell Stark, was just able to blow away South Africa's tail. I mean, that was awesome viewing. What was it like over there? Yeah, it was. I mean, we've become used to it from Stark. I mean, <laughs> there's not many bowlers that, that we've seen over any era that can just devastate a side like that. And really, Taylor just cannot play Mitchell Stark. He's just too quick, uh, too you know, too much variation. Yeah, it's 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 almost too easy for him. So yeah, it was an outstanding performance from Stark, and arguably his his uh, knock with the bat was just as crucial as some of the wickets he took because his quick fire 35 really elevated Australia from a score that was going to be in the 200s to well into the 300s. And just psychologically, that makes a big difference, I think. I mean, if Australia had have only put up a total of, say, 270, 280, it's a kind of a different mindset for South Africa when they come out to bat. So Mitchell Stark had a, had a tremendous all-round game. Uh, I suppose if you were to pick one criticism, and it is it is uh, being uh, quite finicky, but perhaps he could improve with the new ball. We haven't seen him as effective with the new ball, but you know, have you ever seen a bowler more effective coming back? Um, you know, for for his latest spells, you know, he he really he's the master of the old ball. Absolutely. I thought Nathan Lyon's first over of the test match when he came on and dismissed Elga and Amla um, in his first over set the tone for the Australian innings. It obviously changed the momentum, but I thought Nathan Lyon showed a bit of Shane Warne there when he was sort of came on and just changed the complexion of the test match. So Australia took a match ceiling 189 run lead. Australia made 227 in their second innings to set South Africa a total of over 400. I guess Cameron Bancroft's 53 couldn't have come at a more important time for him. No, um, I mean, the way that the match went, uh, presuming Australia had won, um, I think Bancroft probably would have survived for the next test. But in the end, I mean, his 50-odd was important because Australia probably didn't quite nail that second inning. A couple of batsmen threw their wickets away and then batting did get quite difficult um, in the middle to uh, middle end of the inning. So Bancroft's runs were key. I mean, he's he hasn't proven himself just yet, I don't think. I think he, he needs another breakthrough performance to really cement that spot. But what he has done is he's proven, I think most importantly to himself, that he's up to it because he was probably starting to think after so many failures that perhaps he wasn't uh, cut out for test cricket. So... I think, you know, that innings was classy, uh, it was tough, it was gritty, and, uh, you know, I think he, he's shown that he is capable of uh, of getting it right. He, he spoke about how it actually took him quite a long time to, um, you know, to really understand and, and get in the groove of, of shield cricket. And based on that, I think, I, I think you know, well, he's confident anyway that if he gets a sustained track at test cricket that he can... He can get it right. So, look, he's brought himself a bit more time. Probably needs a big score in this series to, to really silence the knockers, but he's given himself that chance now. And then South Africa in their second innings were dismissed for 298 to give Australia that 118-run victory. South Africa were 4 for 49 at one stage when Faf was bowled by Pat Cummins, but 
De Kock and Aidan Markram fought all the way and probably a few nervous moments for the Aussie skipper. Again, Stark cleaned up the tail, took four for 75 with a triple wicket maiden. I thought um, Tim Payne had a great game. He took that superb catch off Markram, off Mitch Marsh, standing up to the stumps in the second innings. A really almost a match-turning catch. That was about the time South Africa were coming back into it. And then if you add into that Payne's first innings knock where he batted very sensibly on the first afternoon and his third highlight was probably keeping Warner away from de Kock, he had a pretty good match. Yeah, he did. And he was brought into the side to, you know, for a number of reasons, I suppose. I mean, they wanted more runs from their keeper, but um, they wanted someone who, who was consistently sharp behind the stumps of the court a real presence, and you would say that Payne has succeeded on all counts. It was a catch that, you know, a lot of a lot of wicketkeepers would have put down, and perhaps, you know, on another occasion, maybe Payne would put down as well, but he's he's a very accomplished wicketkeeper, and that was like, you know, it was getting towards being quite a clutch moment in the match. Um, although there was still 120, 130 runs from pulling off a remarkable win, if, they, if South Africa had got through another half an hour that would have probably seen them to stumps because we saw the the bad light coming in early. Um, that extra half hour would have also got them to pretty close to, you know, only about 100 to win. And they would have come back on day five with a serious, serious shot at, uh, at pulling off that near world record run chase. So in the end, it looked like a very comprehensive win to Australia. And it was. I mean, in almost every department, they outplayed South Africa, but that partnership was good enough to, to put South Africa in with a shot. And Payne's catch at the time it came was uh, was probably the, the most critical um, performance, uh, critical moment he's had in Test cricket. So a fantastic victory by Australia. Steve Smith's men going 1-0 up in the series in front of about eight people at the Durban ground. Now the series moves to Port Elizabeth. Ben, what can we expect from the conditions in PE and, I guess, Australia won't make any changes, but maybe South Africa might make some changes. Yeah, you never know. I mean, look, spin is probably going to play, play a part here. Uh, it did last time the two teams played. So, you know, I mean, Keshav Kaharaj had a great first test anyway. So I imagine he's probably booked in for the series no matter what the conditions. But South Africa has a, a slight dilemma about uh, whether Mornay Morgul continues in the side. They've got... Uh, a young fast bowler in Genie who's who's waiting on the sidelines. The other option might be so if you change up their number six, perhaps put De Kock back down to six and then have, you know, the, the possibility of four fast bowlers. But look, we, our attention has been uh, sidetracked the last couple of days with this whole fiasco, but I tend to think South Africa will probably name an unchanged team, and if if things don't go to plan here, then you could see some changes in Cape Town um, with the prospect that Dale Stain could be back for that third test. So I tend to think South Africa will probably give these guys another shot, but uh, you know we'll, we'll wait and see. Tomorrow there's a main training session for both sides. I was listening to Kerry O'Keefe talk about the South African team, and he says that his worry is that they have an ageing batting lineup, and he doesn't think they'll be able to sort of lift. What do you think? Well, that, that, that's been an issue for a while. I mean, certainly uh, with Hashim Amla, I think that's a big question mark. He has not looked like making a run against Australia in the last uh, four Test matches he's played against them. Tavili is 
showed in the first innings that he's a class above and didn't get a chance to really face a ball in the second inning. So, and Fafjik will see, uh, missed out, but he's shown enough times that he's very capable against Australia too. So, look, I think there's a, there's some fragility in that batting order, probably in a similar way to what there is in the Australian side. I mean, if Warner and Smith don't make runs, there's still a question mark about who's going to get them. Mitchell Marsh and Sean Marsh have answered those questions in the last few test matches. South Africa is probably in a, you know, a slightly more extreme position in that if it's not De Villiers or Faf see who's it going to be. But, you know, we saw Aidan Markram, the 23-year-old, show that he's the future. I think the concern with their ageing batting order is more... Uh, what what happens next? I mean, if they all retire at once or at a similar time, then it's it's going to really put a massive in in South African cricket. So, you know, I think these players are good enough to do the job in this series, but uh, the question mark for me is, is when they retire and, and what kind of impact that will have. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your excellent analysis as always. Enjoy South Africa and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Great stuff as usual. And I just want to remind all the listeners that when you get up in the morning and you've missed some of the action from the the day's play the night before, you can catch up on all the action on dailytelegraph.com.au or any of the News Corp websites, Herald Sun, Courier Mail, Adelaide Now, Perth Now, all of Ben Horn's reaction and reports are on those websites. All right, now we're going to take a quick break. But when we get back from the break, I will be joined by Elise Perry. Elise is an absolute star for Australia. She has represented the country 186 times across all three formats of the game. She has a test batting average of over 61 and a one-day international average of over 50. She recently made 213 not out in the Women's Ashes day-night test. She's also the youngest player ever to represent Australia in any form of cricket, being just 16 years old when she made her debut way back in 2007. She began as a bowler and has taken 236 wickets for Australia across the three formats. But quite remarkably, Elise is so talented that she has also played for Australia in football or soccer, earning 18 caps. The highlight of that was representing Australia at the 2011 World Cup where she scored a spectacular goal against Sweden. Alright, so we're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with Elise Perry. Short boundary over there. And that's exactly where she goes. Is it enough? Yes, it is! actually go all the way have you celebrated a little bit earlier so we are going to double check and everyone's oh, going to no. look as we kind of look in oh. it's four it's four she celebrated can you believe it put your helmet back on Elise Perry welcome back to cricket unfiltered menace here and joining me, I have one of my very favourite sports people. Sometimes when I get to interview people that I've, I've been a fan of for a long time, it's very exciting. And today I've got someone that used to play for my football team, my cricket teams, the national teams. Welcome to the show, Elise Perry. Hi, Elise. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. 
it's pretty exciting. I think at one stage you were playing for the Sixers, Sydney FC, the Matildas, the Southern Stars. So I was watching you all the time. How have you gone transitioning from two sports to just playing cricket now? Um, yeah, I think a lot's changed over the last um, couple of years, um, especially in the women's sporting landscape and um, around elite professional teams and domestic competitions in this country. And um, yeah, it's certainly been uh, incredible to be a part of and to see that change and, and development, um, not just the last couple of years, but probably the 10 years that I've been involved. And um, I think a big part of that is the um, ever-increasing professionalisation of, of uh, female sports. And um, from my experience, in particular cricket, um, I think football's on its way. Um, you know, certainly netball, um, the AFLW, um, there's lots of exciting things happening. So, um, yeah, it was really nice to have those experiences Playing two two sports at a high level and um, you know two sports that I love playing, um, but I think as as things have progressed and um, to have the opportunity to be a full time athlete um, in cricket has been wonderful and and I've really enjoyed that and I think um, you know that really is is the best thing for both sports that um, you know they're, they're heading that way and that girls can have a career and in uh, you know being a professional athlete so um, yeah it's been a big change yeah I was I was watching your World Cup goal before I came in against Sweden (laughs) I think it was in the World Cup quarterfinals Um, so you've played in a cricket and a football women's World Cup how sort of different are they because I can imagine there's a lot more attention on the women's football (laughs) World Cup um Oh, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, they're obviously, to state the obvious, um, very different games. I think they're probably received differently too. Um, When I played in the World Cup in 2011 for football, that was in Germany, which, um, you know, is probably one of the spiritual homes of football. It's it's the national sport. They truly love it and they've got a a very, um, very good uh, women's national team there who have won a lot of a lot of titles including a world cup so um yeah that was a huge tournament we had some some wonderful crowds the semi-final in, uh, sorry the quarterfinal included um where there was 30 odd thousand people there um which was just a wonderful experience and um, i suppose they also only come around every four years whereas in cricket we've got the t20 world cups um which are every two years and, and also the the 50 over world cup so they, they're sort of a, <laughs> a little bit more common um occur quite regularly and, and we play those um, World Cups alongside the men in the T20 tournament. Um, up until up until this year, they've they've always been played together, and then um, the one day World Cup has got bigger and bigger each each time we've played it. So um, yeah, different feelings, um, different parts of the world too. I've played a lot of cricket World Cups in the subcontinent where um, they're absolutely mad about about cricket and and they're fanatical in the way that they they cheer um, at games is is really crazy. Um, and then I've played some. Um, in different parts like England where, um, you know, most recently the 50 over World Cup was incredible and, you know, Lords was sold out for the final between England and India and I think every year they just get bigger. Yeah, do you get a lot of attention on the subcontinent? Uh, as a as a team in general, I think you do. Um, Australian cricketers are um, very well known over there and uh, very well followed and I think... It's always been nice to go over there and have that experience playing in the subcontinent, particularly India, but you know places like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh as well. Um, you know, it's it's amazing how how fanatical they are about their cricket and and how into it they are. So we've always enjoyed playing there, and we we often get quite strong strong crowds. Yeah, do you have any twinges of when you watch the Matildas play that you'd love to be playing football still, or is cricket really your favourite sport? Uh, look, as I said before, I just have really enjoyed. The opportunity of um, being a full-time professional athlete um, with with a group of girls. Um, yeah, I don't really have a favourite sport. I've I've always loved playing both. Um, I've 
absolutely um, feel incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunities that I've had in both sports and you know as we've been discussing they're both really different so I don't really have a favourite I think it's just naturally panned out for me that I've stuck with with cricket Um, you know I never made a conscious decision to stop playing football it's just sort of worked out because of how the landscapes have changed but look I I always miss um, putting the boots on and having a kick of the football and whether that's at training or in a match but um, it's particularly hard to to feel aggrieved or um, complain that I'm missing that, given what I'm doing. Oh, of course. I, I, I guess, though, that must have been a thrill to score that World Cup goal. I mean, this, is that sort of scoring a goal in football, it's different to scoring a century or something because you just have that one big adrenaline rush, isn't it? <laughs> um, oh, <laughs> yeah, they're such different games. And, and to be honest, um, you know, we lost that quarterfinal and I probably felt, you know, a, a few of the moments in that match were, were um, you know, because of my mistakes as well. So, yeah, it was nice to score that goal, but at the end of the day, we lost that game, and um, yeah, we didn't progress. So um, it's an, it's a nice moment to have, but I think you know, all in all, regardless of what sport you're playing, if you're playing a team sport, you remember and probably cherish the the moments where the team's been really successful. Um, you know, like winning World Cups or or particular series. So um, those are the things that stand out in my mind. Um, but yeah, you're right. They're different games. I mean, one lasts for 90 minutes, one can last for five days. So um, you probably approach them a little bit differently. So you speak about team achievements. It's been a wonderful season for you personally and on a team level. You won your second Belinda Clark medal. You're now the number one ranked one day batsman in the world. You've got a test double hundred, retained the Ashes. You captained the Sixers to their second consecutive WBBL title. Has this sort of summer been one of the highlights of your career so far? Um, uh, yeah, we've we've been fortunate to achieve, achieve quite a lot. I don't know, I, I kind of feel probably at the moment whilst I'm playing, most summers or, or years roll into one because um, you've had a particularly successful summer back home on Australian soil, but we also, leading into our summer, um, lost the semi-final of a World Cup over in England. So you sort of feel like, well, I feel like there's been some, some ups and downs, but... Um, What's been a real highlight and something I think I remember more so away from the field is just the development of the sport. Um, as I said, the Lords final of the World Cup was, was sold out. Um, that was an incredible atmosphere. And then we came home and played a um, you know home ashes series amongst um, some of the biggest crowds we've ever had on Australian soil, not to mention the people that watched on the broadcast and the way that was covered in the media and the interest in the game. Um, and that flowed on certainly to the WBBL as well. So... Um, from that respect this summer has just been huge and it's been so wonderful for the sport and I think we've seen a lot of new players really come to the fore and make the most of their opportunities and and you know we've got such a great crop of current female cricketers that are progressing the game and that's been a real pleasure to be a part of. Yeah I noticed when you were doing your press conferences over this summer you seem to be really enjoying yourself laughing a lot having a great time I mean obviously it's easy when you're being successful but do you feel you're getting better at enjoying the journey now? Oh, no, no, I've always enjoyed the journey. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I've got any better at that. I think, um, yeah, you, you just, oh, I don't know, I suppose particularly this summer, there's a few really embarrassing things that have happened to me on the on the cricket field and that's probably translated into <laughs> into various um, press conferences afterwards when I get grilled on it. But, um, oh, no, I've always enjoyed it. I think... You, I think it's really um, pertinent in in the women's side of the game and something we actually talk about a lot is that, you know, up until the last year or so, everyone played 
really for the for the love and the joy of it because um, whilst you were remunerated a little bit, everyone was juggling other jobs outside of the sport or um, studying at university or, or doing other things. So um, I don't think anyone's really been motivated by anything other than having fun and enjoying the sport and spending time with the people that you do it with. So, um, yeah, that hasn't changed for me. I suppose maybe you just see a little bit more of it these days. Maybe a bit more of your personalities coming out in the media. No, as I said, I don't think I've changed. I think it's probably just that you see more of it. There's been more opportunities and <laughs> uh, probably more more relevant than anything, as I said, was that I had some really embarrassing things that happened to me on the field this year. So um, the, that's... the double hundred, <laughs> celebrating twice, yeah. the, the almost... Well, the catch, but... That just hit me. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, You mentioned before the World Cup semi-final loss against India. Um, How how do you go with dealing with losses? I know athletes always sort of, you you try and put it behind you and move on. How do you go with that process? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, you kind of just got to work through it as it comes because you probably don't plan for it because you don't want it to you don't want to lose or you don't want to be unsuccessful so you always pin your hopes um and goals and aspirations and also you know the way that you prepare for things you you want to prepare to win so when it doesn't come off it's always um yeah a bit of a a dealing process um you know in the last couple of years actually it's probably been twice some really big disappointments that i haven't been used to in the past or we haven't been used to in the past as a group because we won um a few T20 World Cups in a row. We'd had success in the the the, um, the last World Cup leading up to last year's one. So we'd kind of experienced a lot of great um, great things at, at that level. And then uh, we made the World Cup final for the T20 tournament in India, uh, the most recent one, and we lost that to the West Indies. And then, as you mentioned, we lost the semi-final in the 50-over World Cup last year in England. So um, I think they hit you particularly hard once you've you've experienced the other side of it. And so dealing with it, it definitely lingers for a while. I know leaving both those tournaments, um, you know, it gnaws at you a bit. Like you, you sort of, you know, you get on with life. Everyone does, um, but you wake up in the morning and it all just grates like, at you. Yeah, it just pinches you for a bit. Yeah, definitely. And then you get on with the day. And um, I'm sure everyone um, derives a little bit of motivation out of losing. And it really highlights where you need to improve too. So that's that's kind of the positive to it. But it doesn't mean that I don't I don't think you dwell on it for a while. And particularly when you you break up as a group after a tournament like that, and you're left to your own devices, you kind of just stew on it even more. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's go back to your very first game for Australia. It was all the way back in 2007 against New Zealand. You had a very good debut. Took two for 37, and scored 19 runs off 20 balls. Do you do you remember the moment when you were given your Australian cap? I don't actually remember the particular moment that I was handed my cap, but I do remember the night before being told that I was playing. So I'd um, kind of come out of nowhere to be on that trip and pretty much had expectations of carrying the drinks for the whole series and just really enjoying it. I was 16 and, and it was in year 11 at school, so it was kind of just a few weeks of school that yeah. I was looking forward to um and you know given the the players in the team and um you know where where that side was at the time too I, I was just kind of along for the ride to be honest and bowling my heart out in the nets and and then yeah hopefully mixing the drinks well <laughs> on game day and and just taking in all that I could but um yeah one of the fast bowlers Claire Smith at the time went down with a, a back injury and I remember um yeah the, the chair of selectors coming and knocking on my hotel room the night the afternoon before a match and saying oh, I'm playing and I just remember being like oh my gosh 
Um, I'm pretty sure I left our hotel room and went down to a park and did lots of like shadow bowling where I just pretended I was running in because I had so much energy and I guess um, nerves. nerves that I just wanted to go and do something about it. So I remember that really well um, and it was obviously a huge thrill to be able to play that game. So you were 16 at the time, is that, is that what you said? Uh, yeah, 16. So, so were you on tour with your parents Did or were you by yourself? <laughs> um, no, I just I just went with the team. Um, we Back in those days, we used to stay in apartments with a couple of other teammates. So I was put in an apartment with Kate Blackwell and, and Clea Smith at the time. Um, and yeah, you just immerse yourself in the team environment. Mum and Dad... Oh, actually, I don't know if mum was there. Definitely my dad came up. He was there for my first game, you know, but you didn't really spend any time you with them. Um, you're very much just a part of the group on tour and, and did everything, and that was also my first taste of it too, so I just kind of wanted to be around everyone. Yeah, did you feel that it was a huge learning experience being with all these older women? Um, oh, I'm sure subconsciously I picked up a lot. Um, I think, you know, that trip was just, so much fun and as I said I didn't expect to be there I don't think anyone expected me to be there so I was just you know taking it all in um I think certainly subsequent trips after that um when I was sort of kept getting selected on tours I really learned a lot and I do think it probably uh helped me mature and grow up a little bit quicker than I probably otherwise would have you know especially throughout my high school years I just felt like I'd had these extra experiences that most kids in high school don't get at that stage um you know sort of operating in the real world so to speak a bit and um yeah I really enjoyed that and it was really beneficial for me yeah and what was it like going back to school and being around your mates where did you go to school in Sydney somewhere yeah I went to Pimble Ladies College in Sydney and I absolutely love school I, you know my best friends still are all, all friends from school and they were incredibly supportive and yeah, it just felt like I hadn't really missed anything when I when I went back. Besides the work, I, I was always pretty far behind on that. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think one of the things I loved about the school that I went to was there was so many girls achieving things in so many areas. Um, you know, it wasn't just sport. It was drama and arts and academics and debating. And, you know, we had like the world champion chess player at school. So there was this really great culture of, I guess, um, achievement, achievement and, and people really striving to do their best. Um, and so, yeah, it just felt like I was back a part of, of the school. And, um, yeah, it was really nice to see friends. And um, I always had I guess post to a blues a bit of not being away and being back at, at school and having to put a uniform on and all those things. But, um, yeah, it was great. Yeah, friends have a tendency to bring you back to earth pretty quickly. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> um, what was um, it like for you growing up in the public eye? Because, I mean, I, as I said at the beginning of the show, I meant that I've been following you probably since 10 years. You've been the most publicised one of the most publicised female athletes in the country. I don't know if it's because I'm a massive soccer and cricket fan, but you know, how was that experience at such a young age? Oh, um, I've never really viewed it like that, to be honest. I think, you know, relative to the, the size of the country and the amount of people here and, you know, the fact that there's so many people doing so many different things in different walks of life, so I, I never really felt like I was in the public eye, so to speak. I suppose you know people that you know and who looked out for you and they saw you on tv they'd kind of mention that and things like that but um yeah i i genuinely just felt like a and still do feel like a normal person who just is fortunate to play um sport for a living now um but you know in the past just sport because i love it and at um at a level that i'm fortunate enough to to have been able to reach but um 
I, I think, as I said before, the one thing that I'm really grateful for is those experiences when I was 16 or 17 um, and still at school really, um, I think, helped me mature and get a real grasp on you know, who it is that I want to be as a person and um, what I want to get out of life and, you know, the things that, that are really important to me in terms of um, my sporting career but also, you know, I guess, who I am as a person away from the field as well. Yeah, and were there any negatives to being, having all that attention or...? <laughs> oh, I don't think so. Um, yeah, to be honest, as I say, I didn't really feel like I had a lot of attention. I just... Um, you sort of did what you did? Yeah, I think I've just always loved this environment. Um, I think you're around so many people for a day-to-day life that have achieved a lot and are really motivated and passionate and I think that rubs off on everyone um so you just you kind of you just want to get on to the next thing um I guess when you have a good good game or put in a good performance you feel a little bit content for um for that day and you're really happy with yourself and you probably go to bed kind of yeah chuffed but you wake up the next morning and there's things that you you know new things that you want to achieve or things you want to work on or you know a new challenge ahead of you so um I guess I've just kind of always viewed it like that and I've never thought I've made it because I always feel like I can be better. Seems like you've had a very level head though and managed to sort of keep your focus away from all the external pressures. Um, uh, yeah, I think I'm pretty intrinsically motivated in that sense. Like, I've, Yeah, I think I derive a lot of yeah motivation from, from things that I want to achieve and it's not really about any external kind of motivators, whether that's fame or attention or anything like that I, I yeah I, I don't know I'm a pretty private person I, I don't really I'm not really interested in that stuff it, it's not me I I probably get pretty exhausted being around a big group of people for too long because I'm quite introverted and yeah so the things that I guess make me feel satisfied is just when I when I achieve things that I put my mind to and um you know I think in large part being a part of a team when you're doing that too um makes it even more satisfying because you've worked with those people closely and you can share that with them and and that's as far as you need to go with it and how has then being the captain of the sydney Sixers been for you i know last year you injured you missed the final but this year you were able to play right through the season lift the trophy how was that experience leading a group oh i've absolutely loved it i think it's probably been one of the most fulfilling and satisfying things that I've done so far in my career and um, you know every every player I think when the WBBL started had a real sense of ownership for the tournament and a real value for it and wanted to make sure that it was successful because it really is the showpiece of our game at the moment um, in Australia but also around the world it, it's easily the you know the preeminent women's cricket competition um, for a number of reasons I think the standard and the quality but also the professionalism of it um, the fact that we attract the best players in the world to play in it so yeah, I've really loved the opportunity to, I guess, use the things that, that I've learnt over the time that I've been playing and, um, you know, the things that, that I think help make a team be successful and, and work really closely with our head coach, Ben Sawyer, and the rest of our support staff, as well as all the players to, I guess, ingrain that into our team and create a culture that, that is hopefully successful and, and we play a style of cricket that we want to play that that's going to um, hopefully inspire more young girls to play as well. Yeah, definitely. It seems like the the Sixers and the national team is very close. It's, it's a real tight knit group of players. Is that is that right? Is it you know? It seems like a really good close group. Um, yeah, some are well, closer yeah. than others, but yeah, I think like any any um, environment or, or workplace, if you want to call it that, you know, there's people that you that you probably more naturally gel with than others, but um, certainly 
in this kind of, um, oh, I guess in sport, you know, when you're all working so hard to achieve a, a common goal, you do become really close and you spend a lot of time together as well, so you get to know each other really well. And I think particular to those two teams you mentioned, the Australian team, the personnel hasn't changed a lot in the last five or six years, so we really know each other well. Um, like We'll go out for a team dinner and I think I could probably order what everyone's going to have um, for them and, and vice versa. Do you know versa. all the coffees? Yeah, I know all the coffees. Um, I know who, who likes fish, who likes chicken, all those things. So, you know, you just get to know each other so well because you're kind of living out of each other's pockets. Um, and it's probably the same with the Big Bash. It's sort of six or seven weeks of real concentrated um, and intense time together and so you get to know each other and I think you see all the different sides of people which is actually really important um you know it's easy to see the best sides of people when you only spend a bit of time with them but when you're in an environment where you're under pressure and there's you know scrutiny and and you need to perform and and do a job I think you get to know each other really well and then you probably become really protective of one another because you know you know, at times everyone's going to struggle with something. Yeah. Um, now, looking ahead, I saw you. You're on Twitter now. Finally, what, what, <laughs> what brought that on? Was I'm it not the sure. PR department? <laughs> the at least uh, PR department. Yeah, I'm still not. I'm still not sure why I'm on Twitter. I'm getting used to it. But um, well, I saw I'm one on of there. your answers to a question yeah. about your outside interests that you like public policy. <laughs> so is this? You know, foreshadowing a, a career in politics? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worse. I think it's suicidal being a politician. <laughs> but um, oh yeah, I've just I think as I said before, like the last couple of years of my schooling life, when I was kind of travelling around to different places and seeing you know whole new parts of the world, which I'd never been overseas before. I um, got selected to play for Australia. I'm not I didn't have You're a passport, so I didn't have a passport. <laughs> no, so um, I think you know doing that and seeing different cultures and you know, I guess yeah, different different nations and, and where they're at um, in terms of um, their development um, and then always being able to come back to Australia and live, you know, live in this country where we are so incredibly lucky, you know, and the opportunity that's afforded to all of us as, as youngsters, obviously on varying levels, but I think across the board it's an incredible place to, to grow up. Compared to India or something. Exactly, yeah. we have. Oh, exactly. Um, yeah, I still remember my first trip to India was like I was with... Um, Elisa Healy and we kind of looked at each other and were like we can never complain about anything again um you know and while you're over there you just like your eyes are so wide and you're looking at this incredible poverty but the fact that people still you know happy and they're smiling and they genuinely look like they're enjoying life and then you think about the frivolous things that you complain about you know back home um you know if you don't have your favorite kind of food in the fridge your or something like that too long at the cafe yeah exactly so i think the whole time we were over there we were just like oh gosh like we're so lucky you can't complain and then you, know, you get back home and you're home for two weeks and you're back into the swing of things and then you are complaining about stupid things again so um so do yeah. you want to be involved when you finish cricketing making a difference is that um uh, yeah time? like uh I probably don't have any definite plans or ideas, but I think one thing that I'd, I'd really like to be involved in and, and push onto, onto young people is to make the most of the opportunities that we've got and, you know, just, just go out and do things because I think, um, you know, as I said, when you go over to another country and you see, you know, some people are just pigeonholed into a life that they're never going to be able to get out of and they might have the most amazing talents in the world, but we'll never know. Mm. Um, whereas I think in Australia, you can do whatever you want. Um, you just got to have a good attitude about it and, and put your hand to it so um i think that's where 
it's been so incredible to be involved in women's sport in the last little bit is that these opportunities that are springing up for young girls are just amazing. And like I look at the the new crop of players coming through are going to be ready to play for Australia five or six times and they're going to surpass anything that any of the current players are capable of doing. Um, you know, because you know, for a few reasons they're, they're very talented but they're going to have the most amazing opportunities. So, yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. My daughter just loves seeing the... The women's cricket teams play. It's real inspiration for her. Yeah. Uh, more than my son who hates cricket. The <laughs> listeners will know that. Um, all right, before I let you go, I've got uh, some rapid-fire ideas about the women's Big Bash. Right. You just give me some quick answers. I'm going to fire them <laughs> at you. Okay. They're talking about moving the women's Big Bash to October, November, so it has its own window. I think it's a great idea. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great idea. Needs its own airtime. Um, now... We saw in the opening weekend of the Women's Big Bash, one of your big sixes hit a poor young man in the face. Yep. And I've sort of thought on these smaller grounds, they need to look at some kind of netting like they do in baseball Mm -hmm. to protect the crowd. Do you think as the men and women hit the ball harder, it's something they need to look at? Uh, Yeah, look, uh, it's amazing it hasn't happened more often, to be honest. That's that's sort of what I thought, um, you know, when it happened. Um, And and fortunately, he was okay and... um, yeah, I was able to chat to his dad a few times and, and yeah, he's he's doing well. But, yeah, uh, I, I suppose so. I mean, yeah, uh, you you want to make sure that people are coming to the cricket and, and being safe. But, as I said, it doesn't happen that often, so they probably never thought about it before. I think it'll happen more and more, the, the mm. more sixes. I mean, we saw 32 sixes in New Zealand. Unless um, you put someone with a um, one of those shirts on and you can win a competition and then everyone will be paying attention every every exactly. ball. <laughs> $50,000 if you catch yeah, a catch. Good, so. Yeah, we've got a better fielder. Yeah. What do you think about the multi-format series? Do you think they should play more of them where they mix formats for men and women? Oh, it's probably hard for me to speak about the men's side of the game, but um, I'm a huge proponent for it for the women's side. I think it's worked really well in the Ashes, and it'd be really nice to do that um, against other top nations in the world. Um, and I'm probably saying that because I've got an invested interest, but I'd love to play more test matches. Mm-hmm. I think everyone wa- would, and... The way that we've done it in the Ashes where it's, you know, it's one test but it's, you know, worth a lot of points. Um, there's a lot of interest in that game. Um, we had a great um, turnout to, to North Sydney for that match. So I think it'd be really good to do it against other other nations and it's just going to improve the quality of test cricket then too. Yeah, I agree. Uh, last two, what about Christmas Day cricket? Do you think <laughs> that it's something they should look at or are you against it? Uh, I'm probably against it only because I think about what I want to do on Christmas Day and the last thing I'd like to do is watch sport. Um, You just want to spend time with your family and friends and, and, um, you know, I guess really enjoy each other's company. So, you know, I don't think it's a particularly attractive option, but, um, yeah, I'm I'm not the marketing genius, so... And last question, what about all these girls' cricket leagues propping up? Yep. Do you think that's great for the game now that girls can play against each other and, and build their own competitions? Uh, yeah, look, I think it's great. Um, I grew up playing boys' cricket. Oh, sorry, I should just say I grew up playing in a you know a co-ed team. Um, I happen to be the only girl in, in my team, but there was a few other girls in the comp, and I think that was really great for my development. Um, but it's not for everyone. So um, I think, you know, the fact and it's probably happened in other sports off the top of my head like soccer is a really great example of all girls competitions being extremely successful and you know I think whatever entices more girls to, to take up the sport and get involved and, and then hopefully enjoy it is great so it's probably nice to have both options um, I still think that girls if they want to play any sport against boys when they're young they should yeah well I agree
Cool. Well, Elise, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a thrill to talk to you. Good luck uh, with the rest of the season and in India. Uh, my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for downloading and listening to this week's edition of Cricket Unfiltered. You can find me on Twitter at Amenas, A-M-E-N-N-E-R-S. You can find my weekly cricket column at dailytelegraph.com.au slash cricket. Remember to subscribe and rate the podcast, and we'll be back next week with another episode.